the Jewish views on Elie Wiesel as one of the most acclaimed academics of the Nazi era dies, we hear about his extraordinary life. Special needs for Jewish pupils, Gesher co-founders tell us why they're teaming up with Sinai, and London Through a Lens, the exhibition that shows the incredible vision of photographer Dorothy Baum. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. Labour has lifted the suspension from the party of the MP Naz Shah over online posts made by her which were allegedly anti-Semitic. The Bradford West MP was stripped of the parliamentary whip in April. She said she deeply regretted the hurt caused by the posts, which included one headline stating the solution to the Middle East conflict was to relocate Israel to the United States. Tributes have been paid to the Auschwitz survivor and Nobel laureate Elie Wiesel, who's died at the age of 87 at his home in New York City. Wiesel, who was a Romanian Jew, was deported at the age of 15. He spent time in both Auschwitz and Buchenwald and wrote about his experiences, most notably in his book Night. He won the Nobel Prize in 1986. The chairman of the Jewish Leadership Council, Sir Mick Davis, said the Jewish people had lost one of its great moral advocates. Pro-Palestinian activists waved Hezbollah flags at the annual Al-Houts Day rally in central London. The yellow flag was seen either being raised as a standard or worn as clothing after organisers suggested it was not unlawful. Several thousand people protested against Israel as they marched from the BBC towards the US Embassy in Grosvenor Square. The rally passed off without incident despite the first ever counter-demonstration led by the Zionist Federation. Benjamin Netanyahu has marked the 40th anniversary of Israel's raid on Entebbe Airport by visiting Uganda as part of an historic four-nation tour of Africa. The Israeli Prime Minister's brother was one of those killed as commandos freed Israeli and other Jewish hostages from a disused airport building after the hijacking of an Air France plane which had been en route to Paris from Tel Aviv. Four decades on, it's still widely regarded as one of Israel's greatest military successes. And finally, the singer-songwriter Carol King, who's 74, got a rapturous reception from a 50,000-strong audience at a concert in Hyde Park. She gave her first-ever full-length performance of her 1971 album Tapestry, with iconic songs such as I Feel the Earth Move and One Fine Day. That's the news. Andrew has the sport. Thanks, Viv. Israel's top tennis player, Dudi Sella, has blamed the poor organisation and structure of the country's tennis governing bodies for the lack of Israeli players competing at the top level. Sella was only one of two Israelis who competed at this year's Wimbledon Championships and says the running of the sport in Israel is horrible and daft. In football, the head of the FIFA Monitoring Committee, who's been tasked with identifying solutions with regards to developing football in the Israel-Palestine region, has said progress is slow and that politics and conflict were hampering negotiations. And finally, a friendly football match between Algeria and Ghana has reportedly been cancelled as the Algerians refused to allow Ghana's Israeli coach Avram Grant into the country. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sports at www.jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to this week's edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your edition of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me is foreign editor Stephen Oreschuk and features editor Fran Wolfish. Welcome to you both. 
As ever, Stephen, let's start off with the front page. And for some inexplicable reason, well, I'm guessing you're about to explain what the reason is, there seems to be an image of the Hezbollah flag on the front page of the Jewish News this week. Why would that be? Because the flag was flown on Sunday's Al-Quds Day march through central London. This is an annual march. It's an anti-Israel march. And the yellow Hezbollah flag with the rifle is one of many flags flown. Hezbollah is a terrorist organization, but it's split up into two groups. The armed wing is prescribed as the terrorist group. The political wing is not. But they are the same group. They share the same flag. Now, the issue that the police have is that the guidance is unclear. So they've referred the matter to the Home Office. The Home Office say it's a policing issue and you get ping-ponged between the two. We managed to work out the actual line from the Home Office and it is this. In order for it to be an offence, the context and manner in which the flag is displayed must demonstrate that it is specifically in support of the prescribed elements of the group. In other words, you fly the Hezbollah flag through central London, but you have to specifically mean that it's the armed element that you're waving, not the political element. It makes no sense. Community's up in arms about it. It has been for years. The whole issue seems as clear as mud. And also, I suppose the other problem as well is that how does one prove for definite that someone is either waving it for military purposes or political purposes? I suppose that is the other, the biggest problem. But we're going to discuss this more later in the program anyway on the schmooze. But Fran, do you, as obviously sort of a fellow member of the Jewish community in London, do do you feel the same sort of concern and almost fear, if you will, when you see this flag so close to home? It's just unthinkable, really, isn't it? It's totally uncomfortable. I don't really want to go out to London, which is supposedly this multicultural, forward-thinking city. We're all tolerant of one another. And for the large part, we do all live together quite happily, minorities and everyone else aside. But then you get a, a march like this. Clearly, that flag has been uh, taken along not to make people happy. It's it's for incitement. There is actually no other reason why anyone would bring along that flag. They wanted to make a very clear message. And it's one that I, as a Jewish person living in London, feel very, very uncomfortable with. But isn't the problem as well, though, that if it is the age of tolerance, that maybe it demonstrates tolerance for allowing something like this to happen? If we didn't allow it to happen, would that demonstrate intolerance? It's a real... It's an interesting point. A year ago, there were black ISIS flags flown. And when asked about it, Boris Johnson said, well, we live in a free country. So you're absolutely right. There are two arguments to this. But ultimately, I think it comes down to uh, Hezbollah is an organization that's tried to kill Israelis and Jews and is committed to. Should we really be having that on the streets of London? Well, as I say, we'll definitely hear more about that later on in the programme. Let's move on, though, to another story. And this is a new report out on intermarriage, I believe. And so what does it show? It shows that intermarriage is creeping up, although creeping is the right word. It has increased, but by a small amount. Uh, So it's now 26%. It was taken from... Sorry, 26% though of the whole community. 26% of Jews intermarry. It also shows that the vast majority of children born to a Jewish and non-Jewish parent are raised as Jews, but that that can differ depending on whether the mother or the father is Jewish. It tends to be more so the case with Jewish mothers. 
Interestingly, although the figure is 26% and on the rise, the JPR report talks about an upward trend. It's still half the level of that seen in the United States. See, what's really interesting about the whole intermarriage discussion is, again, one that we've had many times on this program before. I don't know whether or not I've ever declared this on the program before, though, that I, I wasn't even aware, so brought up was I, to believe that Jews married Jews, that I didn't even realise people actually could marry out, as it were, because my family, and I think this is actually quite unusual, and I didn't realise just how unusual it was, most of my family out of dozens of cousins from my mother's side of the family, and frankly, I think my father's side as well, pretty much, I'd say, 95% have all married in, So, which, of course, is quite unusual but I didn't realize just how unusual it was but I'm also I suppose interested to know that if you say 25% of the community is the total number of those who have married out I'm actually quite surprised it's that smaller figure I thought that was actually more popular. It is an interesting study on the one hand it's showing that there is perhaps this rising trend it does also make the point that compared to the United States for example I think the intermarriage rate there is 50% by and large the Jewish community in the UK it suggests are quite traditional still and will marry in compared to the community in America. What the report doesn't actually say however is why the rate is going up it doesn't really explain that. So you know, I think it's it's a trend that needs to be looked at. And, you know, for some synagogues, obviously, they may adapt the way they relate to intermarried couples and, and blended families. But I guess that it also begs the question, why does it matter? Because there will, although there will be to some, it matters greatly, but then to others, they'll think, well, why are we even giving this airtime? So what if people marry out? Surely marriage is who you want to spend the rest of your life with. End of discussion. Shouldn't matter what their background is. Do you think that that's a sign perhaps of us as a community maybe being a bit intolerant towards such masses? Or is it just facts and figures and there you go, we're just telling you it's just for the record? Marrying out has long been a concern. I think it's based on the likelihood of the children from those those intermarried couples, whether they are more likely to even if raised as Jewish, uh, whether they are then more likely as a result of their parents being mixed to go on and and marry someone who's not Jewish. And the the study finds that they are over twice as likely to do so. So, yes, community leaders and policy planners are keeping a very close eye on this issue. But you're absolutely right. They always have. I think we've got time for one more. Let's let's shoehorn in. I quite like this story. There's, There's a bid to try and reunite the owner of some World War medals. Just very briefly, what's this about? So Ajax got in touch with us and said, look, we've found these medals on the on the road for with uh, the names on the on the back of the medals. It was an an H. Wilston and a G. Beck. And they believe that these are Jewish soldiers whose perhaps whose family members may have dropped them and they're seeking to return them. The first fought in the First World War and Mr. Beck fought in the Second World War. Both saw the whole campaign and and G. Beck fought well into the 50s. So what Ajax is saying is what these men went through, we owe them a duty to, to try every last possible route to find the family and trace the family. They've gone through their database, their archives. One suggests that H. Wilsden fought in the East Lancashire Regiment. So they're asking Jewish news readers now whether they know who these people might be. 
Well, also, if you think you're listening to this and you do recognize those names, one more time those names are, sorry. H. Wilsden, spelt W-I-L-L-E-S-T-O-N-E, and G. M. for mother, Beck, B-E-C-K. Excellent. Well, if you do recognize them, then please do email studio at jewishviews.co.uk. Thank you both. That's all we've got time for for this week's look at the paper. Don't forget that you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can always read the e-paper online at jewishnews.co.uk. Now, as you have already heard, Elie Wiesel, one of the most acclaimed academics of the Nazi era, has died. He was 87. Mr. Wiesel was an Auschwitz survivor and Nobel laureate and is yet another person of a generation that we're never likely to see again. To find out more about his incredible life and to hear how he'll best be remembered, Kate Fulton has been speaking to Karen Pollock, the CEO of the Holocaust Educational Trust. Karen, what is the Holocaust Educational Trust? The Holocaust Educational Trust is a charity that teaches about the Holocaust in schools across the country. We train teachers on how to teach about the Holocaust and we provide resources for teachers to use in the classroom. We have a number of amazing Holocaust survivors who are willing to give their testimony over and over again and travel the length and breadth of the country through our outreach program. And we have a project called Lessons from Auschwitz, where two students from every school and college in the country have the opportunity to visit Auschwitz and see the camp for themselves. And they come back as our ambassadors and form part of our ambassador program. So the work that we do, really, our mission is clear to make sure that people know about what happened, to honour the memory of those that were murdered by the Nazis, to honour those that survived but also to look at the contemporary lessons today. Recently, we've uh, very sadly lost Elie Wiesel. Tell us a little bit about him. Why was he so special and uh, what was his legacy? Elie Wiesel was from Romania and he was a Holocaust survivor. And I think the thing about Elie Wiesel is that he wrote a book that many people would have heard of, a seminal book called Night, which... He described his experience in the camps, specifically uh, Buchenwald, Auschwitz, in such a raw way that there's no hiding from what he went through and some of the feelings that he had as well and the difficult truths, in a sense, that he had to face up to. I mean, I remember reading it as a teenager And now when we visit Auschwitz with the young people that we take on our Lessons from Auschwitz project, we read an extract where Ellie describes where he was separated from his mother and sister, never to have seen them again. But the thing about Elie Wiesel is he was a survivor, but he was somebody who not only wrote down what his experience was in night, but he became really, I think, a symbol for the survivors and of the Holocaust, actually, in the world. He was the most incredible, I suppose, an ambassador, telling people not only about the brutality of the Holocaust, but also about why we shouldn't stand by and, you know, we should stand up against injustice today. I think he was a voice. He often said, I think, that he was a voice for those that were murdered, a voice for the voiceless. But he also, I think, was a voice for humanity, would you say he was an activist? Did he did he campaign? Was he did he go around himself lecturing? 
I think he traveled all around the world giving lectures. And I was privileged enough to hear him speak eight years ago at our 20th anniversary dinner for our organization. And it's safe to say that if you've heard Eddie Wiesel, you've heard something very special. I mean, he had a powerful way of speaking, an eloquence of delivery and thoughtfulness that demanded and commanded you to listen. And he did have views about world events beyond the Holocaust. And I know that specifically he spoke out about Rwanda. And I I think I'm right in saying, but you might want to check it. But I'm pretty sure that Bill Clinton in his tribute to Elie Wiesel recalls when he was persuaded to pay attention as to what was going on in Rwanda by Elie Wiesel. I mean, I think that speaks volumes. It says, did he have a family himself? Did he go on to to sort of create a new family out of the ashes of those that he'd lost? He did. And when we talk about Elie Wiesel, perhaps we do talk about him in that iconic way. But we should also remember he was somebody who went through unimaginable experiences. He lost his family during the Holocaust and he went on to live the most extraordinary life. But ultimately, yes, he, you know, somebody has left lost a husband and a father but I think he meant so much to all the survivors around the world as well so it, it just makes it even more clear doesn't it that the eyewitnesses are becoming fewer and his seminal work like Night and many of the other books he's written are so important and the recording of his and others testimony so important for the future did he live in Israel was he, or was he based in the UK? He lived in the US. He, oh, he lived in the States? Yeah. Until he died. Ah, oh, hence the reason why Clinton had uh, yes. spoken to him. Yeah, I think he was one of the founders or founding members of the US Holocaust Museum. But again, I, I hate saying things that I'm not 100% accurate on. So, yeah. <laughs> and when you're teaching sort of young people about his life, do they find it such a big thing to hold, to understand having your family ripped away and and brutally murdered how do you manage to put his story across to young people i think that's the challenge how can you really appreciate what it would have been like how can you possibly imagine being separated from your mother or your father or your brother or your sister never to see them again and then to eventually find out that they were murdered and how they were murdered and why we often say you know the holocaust raises unanswerable questions and what we try and do is try and break down that six million to understand that each person was an individual. And Ellie had a background and a story, as do many of the other survivors that go around the schools or survivors' testimony that young people read. Ultimately, it's the point that the point here is they're people like you and me whose lives were cut short simply because they were Jewish. Do you ever find when you're going around talking to people, do you ever come across the, well, the sort of xenophobia that we've been seeing recently, but anti-Semitism in particular? I'm hesitating because I think that what we find is when a survivor goes into a school and it can be in the most challenging of areas and in the most disruptive classroom, that you can hear a pin drop when they're hearing from a survivor. And the engagement they have in the subject is overwhelming. And no, you don't get anti-Semitic responses. I think though sometimes that, you know, you hear about things in the playground or derogatory terms that perhaps are used in a sense of 
I, I suppose young people would call it banter, but we would perhaps say it's bordering on whether it's bullying or racist. You hear about these things. There are anecdotes. And there's sometimes an element, a challenge of do they really understand the impact of what they're saying or the offense that it could cause? But I have to say our experience, I'm proud to say, is one where there is, you know, 100 percent engagement. We don't feel there is a resistance to understand. That's fabulous. That really is a real testament to the work that you do. And if somebody wants to come and listen to one of your speakers or or find out more, how do they get in touch with you? If you want to know more about our work, please look out on our website, www.het.org.uk. Because our survivors mainly speak in schools, that's their main work. But there are always other opportunities and we're always keen to, you know, help people as much as possible um, and, you know, coordinate opportunities so people should get in touch. And ultimately, you know, our aim is to teach every person from every background about the Holocaust. And we're trying to do that, whether that's through the 3000 young people a year who visit Auschwitz or the 100,000 who hear from a survivor every year. But our work is definitely not done. We're not reaching everybody. You know, with the sad passing of Eddie Wiesel, it's a timely reminder that we're moving from living history to just history. And it just makes our work even more important. CEO of the Holocaust Educational Trust, Karen Pollock, talking to Kate Fulton there about Ellie Wiesel, who's died at the age of 87. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Rosnan will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Adam will be joined by founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carbritz, and actor and photographer Tony Honigberg. They will be discussing the potential threat Hezbollah pose to London Jewry. Plus, Diana Toman will be speaking to Ali Durban and Sarah Saltman about Gesher, a new special needs education organisation who are teaming up with Sinai. Now, if, like me, you have a bit of a soft spot for our great capital and you also happen to like or remember the 1960s, then our next guest will please you no end. Dorothy Baum is a photographer who currently has an exhibition on at the Jewish Museum that showcases London in the 1960s. Well, I've been speaking to Dorothy to find out more about her work. I started by asking her to tell us about the time that she very first picked up a camera. I studied photography, right, during the war at Manchester College of Technology, which was part of Manchester University. It was a vocational course, and I became quite a well-known portraitist. It was during the war, and cameras were not encouraged to be taken outside. Manchester during the war was a very interesting place, but for photography, it was mainly in the studio. One of my very wonderful friends in Manchester, a person who became a godmother to me, was a fantastic woman called Marie Nordlinger, and she was a friend of Marcel Proust when she lived in Paris. She helped to translate Ruskin for Marcel. She was an artist, 65, and I was 16, right? I was without any family. I had to be sent to England to avoid the Nazis. So for me to have a woman like that as a friend was wonderful. And being an artist, she also looked at my photographs 
I must say right from the beginning, my work has been liked by artists and writers. I didn't know many photographers, right? I had intended to study medicine, but unfortunately it was impossible. There was no money, of course. You say that you were going to study medicine and then obviously your your path took you down photography instead because of the lack of money. But I take it that there are obviously no regrets because your work is notorious and frankly incredible. <laughs> I mean, I've got here in front of me a book which is entitled 60s London, which of course is heavily what the exhibition at the Jewish Museum, or I believe solely the exhibition at the Jewish Museum, is based on. Um, so perhaps let's fast forward a little bit and maybe you could tell me a little bit about how you went from taking portraits to actual images of, say, London as a whole. And what in particular did you try and capture about London in the 60s? Well, London I came to in the 50s. And I have lived in Hampstead for 50 years now. It was very exciting. It wasn't what it is now. And once I had discovered the possibility of working outside with my small camera, I became fascinated by doing this, right? The 60s was an interesting, the end part of the 60s. And I remember when the book came out, Freeze gave me a very nice review and said her work shows the 60s so much better than other photographers and so on. I am a humanist and it was people who interested me. I've known quite a few famous people, including many famous photographers and Sir Roland Penrose in particular. I've never been interested in taking portraits of them, which was possibly wrong, but anyhow, I was interested in people, ordinary people, their lives, what they did and so on. In order to carry on with the 60s, I used to wake up in the morning, look at the light, decide whether it was suitable, and then decide on where to go. And incidentally, Whitechapel was one of my favorite places. Now, Whitechapel then was very different to what it was is now. It was a very Jewish immigration and so on. And people were lovely. I'm sure people in Whitechapel are lovely now, but maybe they were just different then. <laughs> <laughs> Very different. I've recently been there. It was amazing, absolutely. What's it's happened changed to a it? bit, yes. I assume. <laughs> well, the whole of London has changed so incredibly. I am now working on one last idea of mine, which is the last 20 years of life in London in colour. When I was studying photography, there was no... Colour was... Not very good. We did learn about it, but we found it wasn't very good. So my early work till 84 was black and white, and there now the printing of my work. If you see the exhibition at the Jewish Museum, all the prints are done by me, obviously. And it's just as well there was no color available for me then, because... 60s London, I think, looks very good. And of course, I've done something like 14 books, you know. <laughs> well, goodness me, I'm not surprised because perhaps you said to me just before we started this interview, you, you disclosed how many years you have been working in photography. Can I be so impersonant as to ask you to reveal that now to anyone listening, how many years you've been working in photography? 
Well, you see, I started studying photography at 16. At 18, I had to earn my living, right? I'd been encouraged having seen the work of a London photographer. And at 18, I worked in Manchester in one of the most important studios, Samuel Cooper, a Jewish photographer, who offered me a job. And it's been a life in photography. Because until a couple of months ago, when I took a portrait I was asked to do of a very good painter, and I was pleased the work was good. So it's been continuously photography. But a photography which I was lucky enough to be able to do because I wanted to take those pictures, right? Perhaps you could tell us a bit about that it's it's not just London that you've captured. The world, uh, yeah. You've, you've obviously captured other cities and you have another exhibition as well. And that is based on what, sorry? Based on Paris. There are three photographers, all very elderly. Sushinsky, I think, is getting on to 100 and something. Uh, on London, a very, very different kind of London to mine much earlier, and a lot of rain. None of my pictures have any rain in them. <laughs> then me on Paris. I've been very lucky. I fell in love with Paris through that wonderful woman. And these pictures are part of a series I took when I was offered a full exhibition of Paris called An Amour de Paris and at the Carnavalet, the Museum of Paris. In 2005, I had posters all over Paris, including the Metro, and the exhibition was a great success. It was on for four months. They now have well over 100 of my pictures in the Carnavalet, the Museum of Paris in the Marais. You know it. I, it's a I wonderful do, yes. museum. Goodness. And the Bibliothèque Nationale then asked me, could they have some pictures? I let them have some pictures. Paris, the difference, the two cities I have photographed the most. Incidentally, my husband was sent to Paris by Shell, who for a time worked for in the early days. And we went to Paris in 1955. And I was free to roam about Paris. Capturing We were supposed please. to stay three years, but the company decided to ask him back and to send him to New York. And I was very unhappy to leave Paris. New York was interesting, but for me, Paris was a labor of love. And although only had a year, once we went back to Europe, I spent a lot of time photographing Paris. And it's quite interesting to see the difference between the two cities I photographed the most. When you talk of all of your work from years gone by and you see how photography has changed and how it's come on in this day and age where now it's dare I say it's almost lazy people just take out a phone and they take a photo and that's it they probably don't really appreciate what capturing the moment is all about do you despair do you do you worry for I the future really of photography I upset about it Monica my daughter is an art historian so she, we go to a lot of exhibitions Lately, we went to the Auerbach at the Tate, Britain, and I saw people, instead of looking at the paintings, picking up their camera or whatever it is, a little, taking, taking a photograph, photograph, right? Yeah. Instead of looking at it. It's a pity that. But there it is. <laughs> 
What a lovely lady. Photographer Dorothy Baum talking to me there. And if you would like more information about her exhibition at the Jewish Museum, then why not go to their website, which is jewishmuseum.org.uk forward slash Dorothy hyphen Baum, which is spelled B-O-H-M. If you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Jewish Views or on Twitter. We are at Jewish Views UK. Now, a new special needs school and a North London primary school are teaming up in a first of its kind partnership for the Jewish community. Gesher and Sinai will join forces next September to help pupils with an array of different learning issues. Some might be surprised that this doesn't already exist within the community, but Diana Toman has been finding out more for us from co-founders Ali Durban and Sarah Saltman. She started by asking Ali to tell us more about Gesher. Gesher was founded just under three years ago when Sarah and I met in the school playground. And uh, Gesha is a primary school, a primary special school for Jewish children aged 3 to 11 who have additional learning needs that can't be met in a mainstream environment and yet whose needs aren't complex enough to warrant being in the type of special needs school or provision that is currently in our community. Why were you together, as it were, in the school playground? So Ali and I both came together because of our shared experiences. Ali has a son who is 14 now, who had a difficult time at his primary school and has some additional needs. I think that's fair to say. And I have a son who is six years old, who is at a Jewish primary school where they looked after him really well, but essentially they really can't meet the needs that he has. So he actually is now attending a non-Jewish special needs school, which is a fabulous school, but had Gesher have been open for him when he was five, I definitely would have sent him there. So I guess he was my inspiration. Who approached who first? Because the Sinai Primary School has now offered you a deal, as it were, to have Gesher on their premises. Is that correct? Yes. Or have I not um, quite got it no, straight? No, that is correct. I mean, it wasn't really a question of who approached who first. We were in a dialogue with Padges and a lot of other communal organisations within our within the Jewish community. We were really keen to be prudent in terms of the community's resources and fundraising. So we were looking at lots of different schools and Sinai was the one that best had the resources to be able to, to, to have us in terms of space, but also in terms of allowing children to go into their classrooms where appropriate, they had the numbers to be able to allow that fluidity. And they're a mainstream school. They are a mainstream school. They're a mainstream school. So how many pupils are from Gesher actually going to arrive there in September? To be clear, we will be in a completely separate building on oh, their I campus. See. So Gesher will open as an independent school on the campus of Sinai. So we'll be co-located there. There'll be our host school. We'll have our own therapy room, our own classrooms, our own teachers, our own head teacher. And what we will have is access to their playground, access to the amazing resources that they have here. It's a very dynamic school. And where appropriate, and and the reason for this collaboration is, is to 
offer our children the opportunity to be educated again where appropriate in the Sinai classrooms, but also perhaps more importantly, is to allow Sinai children the opportunity to come into Gesha and meet with our children and, and to learn about the needs of these really special and unique children. So you're hoping, in fact, to have both types of pupils students sitting together in fact and learning off each other or not no the idea is very much that the Geshe pupils will learn in the main in their own safe environment right. with individualized learning plans that are tailored for their needs but that every now and again what you'll find is that some of these children are able to access some of the learning in the mainstream school so they might go over for a lesson here or there but by and large, the inclusion happens through the celebration of Chagim and activities and joint events that both schools will hold together. And they must have fabulous accommodation if, they, if, if they're already going to provide space for you to run your own school on their campus, if you like. It's a very well-resourced school and we consider ourselves very lucky to be there. They have a green room, they have a fabulous gym, they have a, a great IT suite... You know, it's a really great opportunity because it means that some of those resources which we would have had to have spent time fundraising for and providing for, we will be able to access them, which means that we're benefiting Indeed. from shared resources. I was going to ask you yeah. about fundraising. How much is this all this going to cost, if, if anything? So fundraising to build a school takes a lot of time and is a lot of money. <laughs> And rather than give definite figures, if that's okay, Ali and I have raised almost, no, just over 75% of the funds that we need in order to build our own building and become fully sustainable after five years. That's amazing. Mm. And you're hoping that all this will be up and running by September? No, this is, it will be up and running by September 17. Oh. We've just secured the deal right. with Sinai. Right. And we have just appointed our head teacher. And from this September, the plan is to start building our building and for our parents, prospective parents, to actually start applying to the school so that we can open our doors in the following September. Right. How are you publicising all of this? Well, we've been publicising it through a series of open evenings where we've been inviting professionals who may be working in the special educational needs market to attend to meet with us to understand how we're going to teach the children, how they're going to access the curriculum. Word of mouth, as I'm sure you can appreciate, spreads pretty quickly. And we've had lots of emails from parents and a lot of the Jewish papers have also been very kind and supported us, obviously, with press articles. So word is really spreading, but we've really waited until this point where we know we've had an opening date in place to be able to announce it formally. What we didn't want to do is to get parents' hopes up and then not be in a place to... What Quite. Ali did not mention is social media. And, and social she media. Is just the queen, <laughs> well, she is the queen of social media. I and was actually, just about to yes, ask you that. No, Facebook yes. has played yes. a massive part in building our connections with the special needs community and also with prospective funders and therapists and professionals who are all interested in the school. Talking about specialists, specialists in how many different fields? Tell me some of the some of the mixed abilities that the children are going to have to face. We've been very cautious in how we label the children who will attend Gesha. We would forecast that the majority of children will have a diagnosis of autistic spectrum disorder and other related issues with that. That's because it is the largest SEN group being diagnosed today. But essentially, we've broken that down and Gesha will be for children who suffer with verbal delay, 
social communication, delay or problems, anxiety, fine motor skills, gross motor skills. So it's really for children who suffer in one or two or maybe three of those areas. And accordingly, we will have the specialists on site to help them. So occupational therapists, speech and language therapists, educational psychologists where needed, clinical psychologists where needed, physiotherapy where needed. So there'll be a whole team around the child in order that we can meet their needs. Ali Durban and Sarah Saltman talking to Diana Toman there about their new school, Gesher. You're listening to The Jewish Views. This is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout this programme so far. Joining Adam Bradley and me today are founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carberts, and actor and photographer, Tony Honigberg. The subject for this edition is based on what we heard in the news with Viv earlier on in the show. Pro-Palestinian activists waved Hezbollah flags at the annual Al-Quds Day rally in central London. There are many questions to come out of this. Do we, as a community, feel threatened witnessing such rallies? Do those who are protesting truly understand who or what they are supporting by waving such flags? And should we be actively doing anything to try and stop such behaviour? I must say, just on the side, that I myself was in the middle of, not in the middle of it, but in the middle of, I was in the middle of the West End when it was all starting on Sunday. And I felt really rather threatened by it. Anyway, let's start with you, Tony. When you see Hezbollah flags being waved around in London, do you feel threatened? Yes, I do. The, the reason being, I think, in my own mind, and I've been thinking about this, is because Hezbollah is a terrorist organisation. If it was a, a, a country's flag that we're at war with, that's a different thing altogether because it's a sovereign state, but Hezbollah is not a sovereign state. That's on the one hand, but on the other hand, is it inciting hatred, racial hatred, violence and everything else? I don't know, because I, I was also thinking about... it. To me, it occurs that it's also linked to freedom of speech. And as you, everybody knows here, that I, I'm a great believer of freedom of speech. Now, freedom of speech, people say things and you can see who's saying it and you can control it and combat it and argue back and everything else. And I think the same with the flag. If someone holds up that flag, that means they're anti-Zionist, anti-Jewish and, and inciting hatred. So I think from that point of view... They're inciting hatred, and that shouldn't happen. But if they're not inciting hatred from it, then we know who's doing it, and we can control it. But they might might say that if there was an Israeli business going on like that, that they would say that they were showing hostility by doing that. But Israel is a sovereign state. So are you saying then that if someone holds up the George Cross that they're inciting hatred? Sometimes it could be, but or, or the Union Jack. Let's say the Union Jack, because that's a sovereign state flag. Then, Tony, then would you can would you I not mean, have that? So I remember a few years ago. I can't remember exactly why, but it was banned to have the Union Jack. We weren't allowed to have it outside our houses, and no, that's yeah. that's a different matter. That still applies. That you cannot, if you're not for good reason, you're not allowed to show the Union Jack outside your house privately. On a, on a pole. No, you can't. You've you got can't. to have permission. Gosh, you've got to have permission. Have permission. Yes. 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 Yes, you must for any any flag. Incidentally, it's only the Union Jack if it's on a boat. 
Otherwise, yes, it's, it's the correct. Union flag. Anyway, flag, yes. enough of me being a pedant. What <laughs> I find interesting, though, you say anyone flying the flag of Hezbollah is promoting anti-Zionism, anti-Jewish feeling. I feel that. There's an issue here, though, and this is kind of the, let's call it a loophole that these protesters find, and that is that there are two sides to Hezbollah. Now, in my opinion, um, I'm guessing in your opinion, the two sides mirror each other. So you're saying there's the, very little because you've got to the political side and you've got the, the military side. side. Yeah. Now, it is illegal to fly the flag of Hezbollah if it's under the guise of the military side of Hezbollah. However, if it's being flown under the political guise, there's no law against it. And it's the same flag. And to be quite honest, it goes back to your point about freedom of speech. Well, this Can is why we I'm... stop people doing something when they, they, is their political belief? This is why I was arguing with myself almost, because mm. on the one hand I'm saying it shouldn't be because it's inciting hatred, but on the other hand it's a form of freedom of speech. And as you said, that way at least you know who they are. Yeah. And mm. you can stop people saying things, you can stop people doing things, but you can't stop them feeling them and thinking. No, but should we stop it because we're driving underground and then we won't know who's, who we're dealing with? I think that they should be allowed to do it, but nonetheless, as I've already said, when I met all these people marching towards their rally, I was extremely frightened. And I don't know why I was frightened, but I was. I saw sign, a sign-up. I really can't remember exactly what it said, but it was very... The, the sign was very anti-Israel. It was... I just thought, oh, my goodness, I want to get out of here. I wonder, I wonder how, how it would go if Zionists came along and, and held up flags and were very anti-Arab. Then I wonder what the reports in the newspapers would be. Would it be? Would we be having this same discussion? Well, we're not against all Arabs. No, it's we're not. It's only the Hamas and Hezbollah, but it's not all Arabs. No. Mean, why would we be? But the Hamas and the Hezbollah are against all of Israel. Correct. And that's the difference. But does flying the flag actually mean they're anti-Zionists, or it, it, could we give them some kind of concession, say that maybe they don't quite understand what? The connotations oh. of the flag are in the same way that the St. George's flag, the St. George's cross, mm. it's, it correlates to the National Front, mm. the far right. Mm. But surely that's not what that flag stands for now. There are people that believe in and love of the country and they maybe they're Christian and they actually... The, St. Most George. of the houses, I think, Adam, most of the houses that have the Red Cross flag, not the Red Cross, I mean... Mm. The, yeah, the, the George, St. George's yeah. flag. St. George's flag hanging out of their windows... And I've done political canvassing around where I live, and there are a couple of houses that, and I've been talking to those people, and they've all been very right-wing. Although, however, that incident of people flying the George Cross outside their house was directly related to the England football team. That's where that started. Originally, yes. Everyone used to... I actually, at one point, a few years ago... Had a St George's Cross, not every good Jewish boyhood, flying out of my car because we were in the midst of a some World Cup or European tournament, and we were supporting the nation. Now I wonder if, in the same vein, can we always directly relate? Oh well, if you fly that flag, this is what you think. Yeah. Is that not a bit blinkered of us? In- interestingly, you're not allowed to fly the Union flag, but you but people hang the St George's Cross flag out of their windows and get and away I, with it. I missed. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a good reason for that. I, I wish I knew the reason, but I don't. But it's 
it's because it's flown by the Queen and Buckingham Palace. It's flown on all official buildings. Ah, right, okay. And ambassadors and things mm. like that, people right. use them. In America, it's the exact I was opposite. Just, that's yes, what America, I was trying to say. I yes. missed this march on Sunday until I got to the studio. I didn't know anything about it because I was in the States and there, every other house has oh. got the Stars and Stripes. They're so patriotic. Yes. Yeah, yeah but the British aren't patriotic no. in the same sense, are no. they? No, we're no. not. We actually have a comment from Henry on our Facebook page who says, nobody wants or dares to comment. Now, obviously, for the people listening on the podcast or on the radio, we're not live now, so please don't text or or comment in. But is that the case? Are we too scared or, or does nobody comment because of fear? Generally, people are. They're frightened of repercussions and, and if, they, if they give a name. Henry has given the name. They're, they're frightened of repercussions from the political side, and I won't say the terrorist side, the political side of Hezbollah that are flying the flag. Yeah. I'm not frightened of repercussions, you know, I, I, I'll stand up. I mean, it's counted, for, me, for me, it's a funny mixture of emotions because I was in central London. It's where Oxford Street meets Regent Street. This mm. was yeah. a year or two ago, and there was another anti-Israel. It was at the height of, of the last mm. conflict. conflict in Gaza. And I was with my wife and my children just walking up Oxford Street. I think we'd been to Hamley's or somewhere. It's a nice family day out. Mm. Got to the top and there were thousands of anti... And it was an anti-Israel protest. And the emotions inside me, on the one hand, I was holding myself back not to go over and start saying, do you know what it actually means? Do you know? Do you realise that Israel, blah, blah. But on the other hand, I was scared for my family's safety. Yes. And I, I shouldn't be feeling that in my own home, my home city. No. I'm scared to actually walk through the centre of That's town. That's very interesting because you're saying exactly the same thing as I was saying a yeah. short, short time ago. Exactly. I, I you're felt frightened. frightened. Mm. You were threatened by these people. Yes. yes. And surely if that's happening in the centre of London on a massive scale, we shouldn't, shouldn't be, be we should, No, surely. We, shouldn't, we shouldn't be frightened. But what can we do about it? How can we stop this? But in fact, you see, nobody Should actually... We? came up to you and said to you, are you a Jew, boof, and hit you or mm. anything like that. It's totally in, in one's own mind, isn't it? Of course. But yeah. what if I'd have gone up to them and said, look, I'm Jewish and I don't necessarily agree with everything Israel said. What would they do then? Interesting. Maybe, mm. maybe we should do that. I've seen things online where people have approached and, you know, because th- there was actually a, a counter... Demonstration behind the police... Line wasn't there? There was yeah. exactly, and I, and I wonder how. But the police kept them apart. Yes, quite. And had they not, well, well I'd been I'd wearing a couple or something that obviously identified you as Jewish, yeah. and, and you don't look at any more than anyone else. Yeah. But then maybe you'd have felt even absolutely, more and and that's exactly why I've never wanted to wear a couple in in public because it. it, it identifies you. Yeah, it does. Well, I was was talking to a rabbi the other day who said he felt scared these days in this country to wear a a couple, as you call Mm. it, a yarmulke, because he said, I was scared, I'm scared of being attacked by someone. And I was very surprised when he said it. Mm. um, My friend was, she was wearing just a Kamaya star and somebody made a very rude comment as she walked along, a man. Yeah. Do you know, I'm almost more worried... Less so, although it does obviously it's a concern, less so about the Hezbollah flag being flown, but more so that every year, and as you alluded to, the Ayatollah Khomeini, Mm. 
set this up in set 1979. Up. I, was, I couldn't remember the year and it was specifically, set up. Specifically, it is an anti-Israel day. day. Yeah. Yes. yes. Why the why on earth is it being allowed? Why is an anti-Israel day being allowed to on march the streets of London? London? Is it in other countries Absolutely. as well? I can only I presume so. I, mean, I guess it must. Uh, no, I'm afraid I don't. I think London. it's a national. Why do we it's a national get the day honor? at the end of Ramadan, isn't it? Our yeah, the last fr- the last Friday of Ramadan yeah. every year. I mean, that's a, I think that's what it officially is called, the end of Ramadan, yeah. and that's why they do it. It could well be true. But there's no secret that it is an anti-Israel it's day. An anti-Israel well, day. no, because they've, they've got these, as I said, I saw it, they've got these signs up saying anti-Israeli mm. comments. See, that worries me more than the flag, because we spoke about freedom of speech. Freedom of speech is one thing, but freedom of speech with has inc- parameters. With incitement to hatred, it should not be allowed. An anti- Would we be allowed an anti-America day? An anti-Mozambique, that, anything like this. Oh, I don't think no. we would. You no. wouldn't dare no. try it. Not that we'd it want to. Ha- you anti- wouldn't be allowed to march. Anti-Saudi Arabia Day. Hmm. It wouldn't I happen. Mean, it, it just wouldn't, be wouldn't happen. But why then is it but allowed for Israel? Let's be, let's, but let's be fair about this. If there were something done by the Israelis saying how wonderful Israel was, is it not possible that there might be something said about Hezbollah and the others? Possibly. Yeah, they yeah, are. So, I mean, you can't... It, the same argument applies both ways, yeah. doesn't it? But they wouldn't be... Yes, it does, I agree. But they wouldn't be holding their demonstrations in London. In, they'd probably be holding it in Israel. There was. Only a few months ago, there was a huge... Pro-Israel um, demonstration. Right. Pro-Israel, There's but the not by Israelis. There's the difference. Pro-Israel. Not anti-Israel. Anti. Positive. Yeah. What if we decided, or Israel decided, across the world... We're now going to hold an anti-Palestine day. The world would go mad. Oh, they'd be up We would be racist. We would be evil. We would be exactly. I have a pro-Israel. It's a positive. Surely anyone's allowed to promote their own country and put it in a good light. But is it, it's kind of almost yeah. like advertising had the fact had, that you can promote so, your own thing, but you're not allowed to so bash yeah, other had, people. Had, had, Why can't they, they bash had, Israel? Had they had a pro-Palestinian day? That would have been uh, okay. Do you know what, Tony? I would find it very hard to argue against that. Mm. Really, because, of course, if that's their belief and they're doing it for the right reasons, then, then fine. Well, maybe Why they not? would say, I don't know. I'm, I'm, we're guessing. Aren't we? yeah. We're guessing, but maybe they would say that to you. They would say, we're having a pro-Palestinian day, which is... Well, it's a positive, isn't it? It's a positive, Rather yes. than a negative yes. view of things. Yeah. I think Adam was right there. But I'm that quite could sure be interesting. That it, it, it could be equally... The same way around. There might be people walking around at a, at a pro-Palestinian day carrying flags saying anti-Israel. Equally, on a pro-Israel day, there might be people walking around with anti-Palestinian. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I could, no, I could go for that because then they're, 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 they've got their right to freedom of speech, even though they're showing it in a flag mm. or, or a bit of writing. They're getting their right to freedom of speech as long as they're not inciting hatred. Well, I'm afraid that's the point at which we've got to leave our discussion. My thanks to our guests, founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carberts, and actor and photographer, Tony Honigberg. Time now for our rabbinic thought for the week, and this time it comes from Rabbi Aaron Goldstein from Northwood and Pinner Liberal Synagogue. Many sections of the Torah are concerned with ritual purity, and Parashat Chukat opens with the bizarre ritual of the red heifer, and the impurity caused by coming in contact with a corpse. In the ancient world of the Torah, an obsession with ritual cleanliness is easily understood as creating all manner of boundaries 
to maintain the cohesion of the community. Basically, ruled by divine diktat, challenged occasionally but swiftly quelled, as with the case of Korach, Datan and Aviram that we read of last week. This is the main rationale for the web of purity laws. For some can be explained logically, in terms of hygiene and general physical cleanliness and that of routine. However, many cannot, such as the red heifer ritual, leading me to conclude that this is all about creating boundaries with the other. The boundaries are so drawn that in many passages, animals with a blemish are not allowed to be offered up or used in a ritual, as with the red heifer. Just think what the rejection might have meant to the slightly short-sighted heifer. But also humans with imperfections, as the Torah saw it, were excluded from rituals, and in Deuteronomy there are lists of those to be included in the camp or not, those who can make offerings or not, and those with whom one can marry with, mainly by association with a people, rather than on the basis of the individual. Today we would call that exclusion, even demonization of the other. The Jewish Policy Research Unit released this week its report into Jews in couples, marriage, intermarriage, cohabitation and divorce in Britain. The survey shows that intermarried couples are less likely to bring their children up as Jewish, but it does not tell us why. Surely the figures say as much about how the Jewish community treats such couples as it does about the attitudes of the couples themselves. If we treat them with disdain, then it is hardly surprising that they choose to opt out of our community. But if we welcome such couples, as I as a liberal rabbi do, then we massively increase the chances that intermarriage means marrying in, not marrying out. This Shabbat in our community, we are having a baby blessing of a child born of a mixed marriage. We are celebrating a 40th birthday blessing of a Jewish member in a mixed marriage, raising their three children as Jews, welcoming in couples in mixed marriages into our community massively increases the chances that intermarriage means marrying in, not marrying out. Sometimes we do need to consider the nature of our Torah laws and work out for ourselves, is it right for our community today? Thank you to Rabbi Aaron Goldstein from Northwood and Pinner Liberal Synagogue with our thought for the week there. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Karen Pollock, Dorothy Baum, Ali Durban and Sarah Saltman, Judy Carbritz and Tony Honigberg, who were on the schmooze, and of course you at home for listening. Thanks also to the team, including our producers, Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. You can always download the most recent editions of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk. And you can also search for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.